The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Continuing our theme of uh, life today, life issues, by taking a look at uh, charity and social justice, essentially. Social justice and charity, whichever way you want to spin it. And... uh, in particular, we're taking a look at social uh, justice as it relates to the uh, question of living a just or righteous life and the bearing that that has on our thinking about the public and political sphere. So I want to read a, just a few verses uh, from Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the Bible, uh, in the Psalms. I think it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And uh, it's significant that the longest chapter in the Bible is on the law of God. I think it's a wonderful psalm and uh, it's one that's well worth meditating on. I'm going to read to you several verses. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 44, uh, 144, then 160, and then 175. Psalm 144. Your test- psalm 119, verse 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Psalm, uh, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Uh, Verse 175. Let my soul live, that it may praise you, and that your ordinances help me. Now, if you read through Psalm 119, in fact, if you look at the whole understanding of law in Scripture, law and life are inseparable. So that uh, God's law, God's justice, is seen as the way of life. It's not seen as the source of life. The source of life is God. And in and through Christ, uh, the source of life and salvation is in Christ. But the way of life, choose life, we're told in Scripture. Joshua uh, told the people, choose life. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. So life, the issue of life and the issue of law are actually inseparable. If we want to know the way of life, to walk in the way of life, we have to walk in terms of God's ordinances. Now, Christians are concerned with truth and justice, or we should be, uh, because the Bible is concerned with uh, justice in our social affairs. In antiquity, uh, we see in Scripture, interestingly enough, that the place of justice was at the city gates, Uh, right there at the opening, if you will, to the city, the seat of authority. That's where the justices of the peace, the elders, the governors, the magistrates sat to judge to give justice to the people. Proverbs 31, 23 tells us this. And essentially they sat there at the entrance to the city symbolically as the guardians of righteousness and justice in the uh, city uh, state, if you will. And... um, Symbolically, this meant that the comings and goings of the city, of the people, was to be regulated by God's word, by God's law. Injustice was not to enter. And this is, I think, a key image for the calling of uh, the Christian in every area of life, but particularly in those of us involved in public vocations where uh, we are influencing public life and public policy. We are to uphold righteousness and justice. And one of the things that Jeffrey hinted at this morning, if I can call him that, Dr. Ventrella, uh, was that um, uh, our forebears in the faith understood this and they took it seriously. They didn't separate these things out. They, they were uh, intimately interrelated. Justice, life, law. The Princetonian theologian, the Charles Hodge in the 19th century, when he was speaking of the responsibility of Christians in regard to justice, he said this, and I'm quoting Charles Hodge, It is our duty, as far as lies in our power, immediately to organize human society and all its institutions and organs upon a distinctly Christian basis. Indifference or impartiality here between the law of the kingdom and the law of the world or its prince, the devil, is utter treason to the king of righteousness. The Bible, the great statute book of the kingdom, explicitly lays down principles which, when candidly applied, will regulate the action of every human being in all relations. There can be no compromise. 
The king said with regard to all descriptions of moral agents in all spheres of activity, he that is not with me is against me. If the national life in general is organized upon non-Christian principles, the church which the churches which are embraced within the universal assimilating power of that nation will not long be able to preserve their integrity. Now that's not only a statement of truth, it's a prophetic statement. Because what he said has now become very much a reality. The churches who are embraced within the assimilating power of the state are struggling to preserve their integrity, their freedom, their independence. He was saying, unless we build our understanding of Justice, social justice, righteousness upon the word of God, uh, he regarded it as treasonous to the king of righteousness. That should be the Christian's objective. So we've seen, as we've seen a vision of Christian uh, justice decline in our culture, our social order has declined. Did you know, for example, that one of the big problems facing Canadian charities today is that nobody gives any money anymore? There was a conference about this a couple of years in Ottawa. How do you bribe a humanistic culture to give to charity? Because people gave to charity because they were Christians. But when you lose, how do you motivate uh, the organic self to give to charity? What could be the function, the purpose? What's meaningful about charitable giving, about social concern... If you have lost a Christian understanding of the human person. So when law ceases to express justice, what happens is it doesn't command respect any longer. Society left without justice actually becomes suicidal. It becomes anti-life. And the Bible is clear about that. Proverbs 8.36. That's one worth writing down. The word of God says, He who fails to find me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. So that if we move in disobedience to God's law, we move in the opposite direction to the principle of life. We move in the direction of death. And if we look at the cost now to society because of our lack of understanding of righteousness and justice, and I'll explain why I use those terms interchangeably in a moment, we're seeing the breakdown of the family, we're seeing the collapse of standards of decency in pornography and prostitution, we're seeing illegitimacy, fatherlessness, criminality, academic failure, declining standards of education, economic breakdown, rising poverty, moral confusion, juvenile delinquency, rocketing suicide rates, etc., etc., etc. A culture in terms of decay moving in the direction of death and the cost to the state uh, of this autonomy that we were hearing about in the last session is astronomical. Marriage has been reduced to a merely personal contract, and state welfareism is now producing a new serfdom and an entitlement generation. You know, in England, for example, in Britain, there are third and fourth generation welfare claimants who literally, well, my grandfather was on welfare, my dad was on welfare, I'm on welfare, my kids will be on welfare. And uh, there was a very interesting article appeared in the British press uh, a few months ago speaking about how the working classes despise the welfare state. That the recipients of welfareism despise welfare because of what it's done to them. How it has uh, it's destroyed their sense of um, humanity. Right? Their sense of personal responsibility, their sense of personal dignity. It's totally impersonal. And so we have developed now uh, wealth, the welfare state in the terms of the, the loss of a Christian vision of welfare has now generated instead entitled, an entitlement generation where people are just looking for loopholes and ways in which they can manipulate the system. Not across the board, but this is common now. There's massive fraud in the welfare state, in all of the welfare economies. And so they are bankrupt. The British economy is bankrupt. What do you think the debt crisis is in Europe? These are bankrupt welfare economies. And they're all being bailed out by the Germans who won't bail them out for much longer. And as soon as any cuts are made, or attempts are made at reigning in the debt, that's all. Not, not repaying the debt, reigning in the debt, trying to lessen the increases in the debt, people call that austerity. Austerity. 
and they're not prepared to accept it. And what happens when austerity measures are introduced? That's what less of a gravy train. People go and firebomb the banks and march through the cities. You know, when the Roman Empire fell, uh, when Rome fell, uh, the Caesar had been offering the people to try and buy off the people bread and circuses. Welfare and entertainment. Those were the two things that Rome offered. And when Rome was broke, he offered them again, and they killed him anyway. They killed the emperor anyway. And this is what is actually taking place in our culture. We, we demand bread and circuses. We demand entertainment and welfare, and we're destroying our culture. And when somebody says, we need to rein in the spending, it's austerity, and people start demonstrating. So if we value righteousness and justice, these things will matter to us uh, as Christians. Now, where does the fault lie? Well, it's been rightly said, as goes the church, so goes the world. And our current cultural crisis can actually be traced to the compromises of the church in both the uh, pulpit and the pew, which has led to the private and public loss of God's word which has severed the connection between theology and every area of life. So how many Christians today in church would ever actually hear a sermon on what the Bible's laws tell us about charity and welfare? Think or ask yourself when was the last, now I don't mean when was the last time you heard Tony Campolo appear somewhere and start talking about being a red letter Christian and how the state should be doing everything. I'm talking about how, when was the last time you heard an expositional sermon from scripture on what the Bible says about Christians' responsibilities in these areas. The reason you haven't is that we have severed the connection between theology and public life generally. As a general principle, this is what has happened. And so the social disaster of our age is that, of our age only, actually, is that civil governments have abandoned justice because they've separated God's law from justice. As Jeffrey was explaining to us this morning, social utility instead of righteousness has now become the purpose of law. The view of many jurists today is that neither law nor justice have anything to do with morality, let alone religion. And in this view, our approximation of justice is simply then what the state enacts. And lots of Christians are bought into this, so that they think when they, when they think they're concerned for the poor, they're just advocating what the state's enacted. The modern state has conflated positivistic law and justice because they want to make justice simply an aspect of itself. Justice will simply be an aspect of the state and its legislation, where the principle then of freedom disappears because there's no appeal beyond the state. And uh, uh, Jeffrey dealt with this in detail this morning. But this is true in Canadian politics. Do you remember uh, Michael Ignatieff, the Harvard professor, a liberal, former liberal leader here? on the issue of law and sovereignty after 9-11, this is what he said. A sovereign is a state with a monopoly on the means of force. It is the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. Michael Ignatieff. This is not just, this is not just uh, 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 legal philosophers and scholars of the 19th century. This is what our politicians are saying. Let me read it to you again, what he said. A sovereign is a state... With a monopoly on the means of force, it is the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. So justice becomes essentially an issue of sovereignty. The question is whose sovereignty? And the contemporary humanistic view means that justice is no longer basic to law and society by being a virtue of God's created order and God's sovereignty. Justice is at best social policy. It's what the state does. And this has led to Christians thinking, well, if I'm going to be involved in uh, advocacy for the poor or issues of, of um, charity and so forth, well, then justice is what the state does. Justice is what the state enacts. Sovereignty is what the state is doing. But the Christian view is radically different. The uh, 
most celebrated British judge of the 20th century arguably was Lord Denning, and in a well-quoted uh, statement, uh, he speaks of the influence of religion on law and the social order in the past. And this is a lengthy quote. I can't remember whether this is in... Um, where did I get this? The influence of religion on law. Hmm. I've got the actual... I haven't actually got the um, full citation there. Anyway... He said this, Lord Denning said this, in primitive, that is earlier, he means societies, the influence of religion on law was obvious, but it's not so obvious in modern societies. In primitive communities, religions, morals, and law were indistinguishably mixed together. In the Ten Commandments, for instance, you have the first commandment, which is religious. God spake these words and said, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. You find... The fifth commandment, which is a moral precept, honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. You find the eighth commandment, which is a legal duty, thou shalt not steal. This intermingling is typical of all early communities. The severance of these ideas of law from morality, of religion from law, belongs very distinctly to the latter stages of the evolution of modern thought. He goes on, this severance has gone a great way. Many people now think that religion and law have nothing in common. The law, they say, concerns our dealings with our fellows, whereas religion concerns our dealings with God. Likewise, they hold that law has nothing to do with morality. But without religion, there can be no morality. He says there can be no law. Now, one of the things that we uh, almost always fail to do when we speak about Justice, and especially when Christians engage in a discussion about justice, is they fail to define it. So if you listen to the rhetoric, especially of um, uh, some of the, uh, even the evangelical so-called parts of the church that speak about social justice, what they invariably fail to do is actually ever define what justice is. They go and tell you pragmatically what you should be doing, but they do not actually define Justice, And this is critically important when we talk about charity, welfare, and social justice. Justice has to rest on some kind of criterion or another. And from a Christian standpoint, it's either the justice of God or the relativistic notions of historical process and positive law and human imagination will govern our human social relationships. If you pick up um, Jubilee, the latest edition of Jubilee on the table out there, Actually, it wasn't the latest edition, was it? It was the the volume two. There is a a, a Jubilee Law and Gospel volume two in there. I write a um, a critique of Tim Keller's a book. Who's heard of Tim Keller? A few of you. Okay, he's written a book called Generous Justice. He's an evangelical, ostensibly reformed thinker. Where he falls into this precisely this trap, where he actually fails to define justice biblically. He gives a couple of anecdotes about what he thinks living justly looks like, stories, but he doesn't set up his discussion biblically. And he ends up really with a sort of uh, human imagination, uh, kind of blended, partly humanistic, partly Christian view of what doing justice actually looks like. For the Christian, justice is something that is revealed. It's revealed by God, because... Justice is what is intrinsic to his character and nature. So if justice is represented by ultimately the source of justice is God's character and nature, God has to reveal his character and nature to us. So biblical justice is something that is revealed. Now it's found in a distorted form in the human conscience and in human traditions. Why do I say that? Well, the Bible tells us it's found in these forms, Romans 1 and Romans 2 in particular. The problem with relying on the human conscience and human traditions is that human traditions are distorted. And the human conscience is seared. So we can appeal to people's consciences, but people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So even though the Bible says men know God in a certain sense, they also suppress the truth about God and they don't know God in another sense. So God has revealed uh, certain things about himself in our very being... But with clarity, he reveals justice in his law. That's why God's law was necessary. Paul says, I would not have known what it is to uh, sin, he says, but by the law. So the clarity of God's righteousness and justice is revealed in God's law. And of course, supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus was the only man who obeyed and fulfilled the law perfectly. So Christ was the, in some sense, the living Torah. He was a walking Torah. He was the walking righteousness and justice of God. That's how actually the Bible sees him. That's how the Bible sees the Messiah. The full manifestation and fulfillment of the law. You'll notice that when you look at the, when Jesus was tested in the New Testament, when you look at many of his dialogues with the scribes and Pharisees, usually what were they trying to do? They were trying to trap Jesus about what? The law. They were trying to trap him on some point of the law where they could show that he was a lawbreaker. And if they could show he was a lawbreaker, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He couldn't possibly be God's anointed if he was in violation of God's law. So Jesus actually properly interprets the law. Further, St. Paul tells us that in the gospel, in Romans 1.17, he says, In the gospel, God's righteousness or God's justice, same word, is revealed. So that in the law, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the gospel, God's justice is revealed. So the pursuit of justice involves also, in some respects, and we'll touch on this at the end of uh, this session, the atonement. The atonement tells us something very important about uh, God's justice. So the pursuit of justice, which Christians talk about today, has to be done in terms of an ultimate criterion for justice. And if this isn't biblically rooted in God's righteousness, then... God's righteousness then is actually not being revealed in our lives, no matter what we call it. We can call it social justice, we can call it justice, we can call it righteousness, but if it's not rooted in God's word, it isn't that. It's something else. Inevitably, the pursuit of justice takes various forms. Socio-political engagement, where uh, we're seeking to see unjust laws, unjust statutes and judgments that oppress or abuse or violate God's order, things that are propagating injustice. We want to see those things revoked, replaced with just laws and judgment and so on. So we, it becomes utterly critical that justice is something that is defined, the source of law and justice. Because if you don't know what the source of law and justice is, how are you going to identify injustice? I mean, how do you know what injustice is? How do you know what tyranny is? How do you know what oppression is? People talk about oppression. But unless you know actually what justice is, how can you identify what is unjust? You have a quiver in your liver. What was it that Jeffrey said this morning? Something sort of coming up from your glands? How do we identify... uh, Injustice, if we do not actually know what justice is. And this is why a lot of the Christian church gets duped into these uh, neo-Marxist visions of social justice because they don't actually know what justice is. It's never been defined for them. It's certainly not being defined for them in the pulpit. Now, the early church's notion of social justice, which they wouldn't have called social justice, as actually a Marxist term, I don't like it, but we can redeem it if necessary. Let's call it public justice brought them into direct conflict with the establishment of their day, because as we saw yesterday, they proclaimed the lordship of the Messiah King and his lordship over everything. So they based their notion of justice, the early church, on the Christian creed. Every social order, one way or another, has a governing principle of justice that is based on a social theory. And this is the thing to look for. This is the thing that you need your antenna attuned to when you're thinking about uh, public justice, social justice, welfare, charity. Every uh, governing principle of justice rests in part on a, of necessity I should say, is based on or is part of a social theory. Now that social theory might be Christian, that social theory might be Islamic, the Muslims have their own theory of of, uh, social justice. Islam is statist in orientation. They have their own principle of uh, giving. Uh, It may be humanistic. uh, It may be biblical. But behind every social theory is an essentially religious perspective. And behind every religious perspective, there is a God, big G or small g. That is, there is a sovereign. There is a concept of sovereignty. That may be incarnated by the state, as we heard from Jeffrey, or by Jesus Christ the Lord. 
Sovereignty is either going to be transcendental, something that God discloses, or it's going to be imminent, something that just emerges in the process of history. It's going to rest either in God, justice, or it's going to be an attribute of man and his order. Now, this dichotomy is fundamental. It is utterly fundamental. Now, the original meaning of the word justice in the Bible is coextensive with righteousness. So throughout the Bible, justice and righteousness are interchangeable terms. In the Old Testament, a just person is a righteous person who does what is right in accordance with God's revealed law, Ezekiel 18.5. The Greek word, uh, the kaiosaini, in the New Testament can actually be translated righteousness or justice. So let me give you an illustration of what that would look like. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that could be translated justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice. Equally, when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, 33, he says, seek first the, uh, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his justice or righteousness, when he's telling us how we should order our lives. That word there, righteousness, again, could be translated justice. So seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. So the word justice in the Bible has a vertical as well as a horizontal uh, dimension. A vertical dimension is God-oriented, a horizontal dimension in terms of the people orientation of the term. So the religious aspect of it is inescapable. The Hebrew word for righteousness likewise means justice. And in the Latin, we have the word justice, from which we divide, derive our term justice, and it literally means upright. So these are the, the these are the norming, uh, these are the normative terms for justice in Scripture. Now we said, I've said that justice is a revelation of God's nature and his character in his law. So law becomes inseparable from justice. And Jesus is the sovereign interpreter of his law. Now, if I had a dollar for every time uh, a Christian came to me and told me that Jesus, you know, updated the law of Moses in Matthew 5, I'd be a very rich man. So that people often appeal to the red letters and they say that, well, it's all well and good talking about God's law being the definition of justice, but surely the Jesus way is higher. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek and redistribute wealth. And you want chapter and verse for that. But this is the idea that somehow in this, uh, this um, amorphous sermon on the mount, love is made the higher way. As though love and law or love and justice are somehow... Uh, in conflict with one another. And yet actually, uh, Christ absolutely is the sovereign interpreter of his law, and in Matthew 5, he does expound the law of God. But far from abrogating it, what he does is he corrects the misinterpretation of his contemporaries about the law. After all, if Jesus was condemning the law, all the charges they had against him about being the, 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 the Messiah, the true manifestation of justice and righteousness, well, they would have been... Upheld, wouldn't they? He would have been a lawbreaker. He would have been an absolute contradiction to everything that God had said previously. But we can't have it both ways. Jesus identified, justified his divinity and his identity on the basis of citations from the law and the Psalms. He defeated the temptation of Satan by citing Deuteronomy. We can't have then Jesus saying that Deuteronomy is not true in Matthew chapter 5. Right, that Moses got this wrong. He doesn't say anything of the sort. The New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner gives numerous illustrations of how people have read Jesus incorrectly as somehow abolishing his law when he's upholding it. So, for example, people say, yeah, but aren't we now supposed to love our enemies? Aren't we supposed to love our neighbours now, Jesus said? Aren't we supposed to uh, turn the other cheek? And yet love of enemies and love of neighbour is something Jesus is quoting directly from the law, Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18. So in dealing with the alleged abolition of the lex talionis, that's an eye-for-an-eye principle of justice. This is what people say. They say, well, Jesus overturned the principle of, this principle of justice, the lex talionis. 
Shriner shows that Jesus was doing no such thing. And this is what he says, I quote, What Jesus spoke against here is the practice of applying the judicial... You know when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you... Some people think there's some sort of antithesis there. What Jesus is doing is he's taking the teachings of... He doesn't say, you heard that Moses said, or the law of God says, but I say to you. He says, you have heard that it was said. He was dealing with some of the interpretations of the law of his contemporaries. What Jesus spoke against here, this is Shriner, is the practice of applying judicial principle that the punishment should fit the crime to the personal sphere. Individually, disciples are to forgive and do good to those that oppress them. Disciples should not take upon themselves the task of righting the wrong of the world as if they should personally dispense justice. Governmental authorities, on the other hand, still assign penalties on the basis of just compensation. If the punishment is not proportional to the crime, then the basis for all justice is removed. Hence, Jesus does not abolish the Old Testament law, but rather corrects a wrong interpretation. So the principle of the lex talionis is actually central to a biblical understanding of justice. And I'm going to show you why this is relevant to the question of charity and welfare in just a moment. Justice in biblical faith means restitution and restoration. It does not mean redistribution. Justice in the Bible means restitution and restoration. That is the restoration of God's order in everything. Nowhere does the New Testament overturn the principle of just compensation. In fact, if you look at the... Uh, I don't want to digress too far on this, but if you look at Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, it's not just a children's song about a little man who climbed a tree. There's some very important principles in there. When Jesus went to the home of Zacchaeus, do you remember what happened? Zacchaeus uh, was a tax collector, and he was a thief. And the mark of the fact that uh, he was repentant was that he restored... Somebody remind me, how many times as much? Fourfold. So he was a thief, and actually biblical law only requires in the case of money there, twofold restitution. But he offered fourfold restitution. What does Jesus say? Today salvation has come to this house. Because his repentance was met with restitution. This is what John the Baptist required when he was preaching to the, um, the crowds, including the Roman soldiers. He required that they not oppress people. Uh, He doesn't actually tell them to leave the army, interestingly enough. But he says that bring forth fruit, meat, that is evident of repentance. So justice in the Bible is always about the restoration of God's order. It means restitution as the the basic principle. An eye for an eye, then, did not constitute an endorsement of revenge. I'll be talking about this more tomorrow when I talk about biblical law. But an eye for an eye did not mean, oh, somebody's poked me in the eye, I'm going to poke them in the eye. Somebody burned me with the kettle, I'm going to burn them with the kettle. It was a way of stating exact justice. That the punishment must fit the crime, that the restoration must fit what was stolen. And so the thief was to restore two, three or fourfold, depending on what had been stolen. And then he was restored to the community. It was not about revenge. The 19th century commentator Enoch Wines Wines shows, he says this, In our exposition of this law, it is important to observe that it did not authorize the retaliation of injuries by individuals, and so make each man a judge and avenger in his own cause. In every instance of the application of the principle of the lex talionis, it was the duty of the legal tribunal to a judge and of the public executive power to inflict the punishment. So... Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not overturning Moses. He's saying that it's not in the personal sphere. And this was a problem at the time, personal vengeance, family feuds. It is not your prerogative to exact exact justice on your neighbor. Now, in the ancient world, there were a variety of ideas about uh, what justice meant in the pagan world. Uh, It implied giving people their due. According to Aristotle, injustice has occurred when people don't 
get their due, which is not that far from a biblical understanding of justice. This encompassed for them the ideas of virtue, charity, morality. There was universal justice, there was particular justice. Particular justice had three elements, commercial justice, that was concerned with fairness and honesty and economic exchange, remedial justice, which had to do with crime and punishment, and then distributive justice, which was apportioning goods and burdens among human beings. Now, God's law deals with all of these things. And if we actually look to God's word for our principles of justice, we wouldn't get ourselves into the mess that we're in. Justice for Christianity means conformity with the law that reflects God's character. And I'm going to prove to you that that law and love are not in contradiction when we're told to love our neighbours. When we promote social justice and charity, we usually do it in the name of Christian love. And people have usually divorced that in their thinking from law. Turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13, we have a brief discussion of the Apostle on issues of uh, justice. I'm going to read verse uh, 7 through 10. Romans 13, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbour has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment... It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. Now that is a silver bullet, okay? If ever there was a silver bullet from the New Testament about the meaning of uh, love, law and justice, that's it right there. That is what the Bible means by love and law and justice. It doesn't put these things in antithesis to one another. It says that, well, think about contemporary Christianity today. People who think they can be professing Christ but living in all manner of immorality. Who say they love their wife but they're committing adultery. Say they love their kids but abandon them. And settle for the odd visit once a month. These are not expressions according to the Bible of love at all. People will say, well, I emotionally, because we've turned love into essentially an emotion, an organic response. Right? That love is fundamentally how I feel about something. And so if I don't feel in love with the person I'm married to anymore, then the marriage is over. Because love is a feeling. Now, love includes feeling because we're whole beings. The Bible doesn't divorce these ideas. But right feeling actually follows right action. So we cannot, in the name of love, disobey the law. This is the important point. We cannot say, in the name of love, I'm going to violate the law of God. Because I want to love people. And people say this as though Jesus... People talk about this as though this is what Jesus advocated. As though he was saying, oh, Jesus' high law is just to love people. Jesus talked about love. As though Jesus is a sort of first century hippie with a camper van, you know, drinking lentil soup with his buddies, the disciples. This is not an understanding of who Christ was. Not an understanding of what the Bible teaches about this issue. It recognises no difference between the claims of law and the claims of love. So any attempt to define justice or social justice apart from God's law leads quickly to positivism, to relativism... And to really the idea that, so, that the social beliefs that triumph are justice. It just becomes whose who social belief can dominate the public sphere. And then that's called justice. So let me get specific for a moment in the, this last section. Because many Christians have ceased to think biblically in the contemporary church, when they refer to justice, they usually have a very narrow idea of distributive justice in mind. So when you hear the contemporary church talking about justice, they're not talking about the law of God. 
What they're talking about is the distribution or usually the redistribution of people's holdings. This is what the philosopher Ronald Nash has pointed out. He says social justice is viewed as that species of distributive justice concerned with the distribution of burdens and benefits within a society as a whole, a distribution that is usually controlled by political authorities. So, and I specialised in missiology for my postgraduate research, and I can tell you that contemporary missiology, that is, thinking about mission and justice in the church, in the present uh, theological environment, is, is this very idea. It centres around the idea of redistribution. I, I went through an entire master's degree in missiology, and, and the law of God didn't come into it. That's why I wrote my thesis on the law of God for the University of Manchester. <laughs> they didn't like it too much, but uh, it, was, um, it was a good exercise for me. So social justice in these terms has little relationship, if any, to biblical justice. It, basically, social justice means democracy pushed to an extreme. The democratic world, the people's voice as God's voice... And what it essentially amounts to today is involves a victimology of blaming the environment or certain groups within society for all sin and injustice. So social justice requires identifying oppressors and victims. I think you're going to be dealing with this, Jenny, probably extensively, so I'm not going to steal her thunder, but she's going to deal with this extensively on the last day. But... In this context, everybody supposedly has the right, as a matter of justice, to equal access to land, equal access to resources, education, opportunity for betterment, a good job, adequate income, various social services, uh, and more so now, not just access to these things, but an equal right to positive outcomes in my use of those things. A ridiculous case came up recently, I was reading about in Quebec, where, where, where a disabled man is trying to sue the provincial government. Because he is disabled, he thinks he's got an, a, a less equal opportunity for sex. Thinks he's less attractive to women, he's got less opportunity to express his sexuality. That, therefore, is discrimination... And the welfare state should pay him money through the social services to pay for prostitutes so that he can have sex. Now, that, that may sound absurd to you, but that is logical. If, if everything, if justice is equalization, which is what the modern concept means, right, the, the removal of distinctions, then all you have to do is try and show that compared to somebody else, you are in some way, worse off, discriminated against, have less opportunity, and your outcomes are not as good. So this now includes, even amongst so-called evangelical writers, the question of homosexuality, gay adoption, that is put forward as a justice issue. It's an issue of social justice. This is the argument of, of Peggy Campolo, Tony Campolo's wife, in a book called The Justice Project, an offering by the Emergent Church. That it is a justice issue, gay marriage and gay adoption. Because these are an oppressed minority and justice is equalisation. So that can be in the economic sphere or any aspect of the social sphere. Equal access to these things. And that, what this does, it doesn't define justice at all. All it does is give you an endless panoply of entitlements. It doesn't say anything about justice. What do those things have to do with being just and giving a person what they're morally due? We were discussing yesterday with some of you about uh, whether, whether um, a you know, full education is a human right. We have to ask questions about that. Certainly it's a great human boon, it's a human benefit, we should strive for it. It was the Christian church that introduced, actually the Hebrews first, but then the Christian church who invented universal education. Because we saw it as so important. But human rights are not the same thing as God's law and what God requires. So there is a very deep uh, division here between various forms of social political deliverance through social justice, that is equalisation, 
And by contrast, the theological solution to the social consequences of sin through biblical justice and Christ's atonement. The uh, infiltration of these ideas in and through the church has actually come through um, liberation theology. How many of you have heard of liberation theology? Okay, some of you. That term liberation is another important byword within the social justice movement, within contemporary politics, right? Women's liberation, animal liberation, child liberation, and perhaps most importantly today, planetary liberation. So the ultimately, the, the, the sort of new um, essence of, the, of, of oppression is the planet. The planet is being oppressed and raped and abused by the human virus, by the infection of human beings. And actually, if you're going to take the side of the poor and the oppressed, you have to take the side of the planet. Because until you rectify these structural problems with planetary injustice, you, that's what Al Gore, Al Gore is a religious man, deeply believes this stuff. You have to liberate the earth. You have to liberate the planet. You have to lib liberation means the removal of distinctions. So liberation theology, which came into the church, is about economic salvation. It's the replacement of the salvation of Jesus Christ with economic equality. As one social commentator has summarized, he says, Modernism's characteristic message is the social gospel and social action. Modernism, modernism is the status theology of contemporary man. Its gospel is that the state has an answer to all man's problems. What, whether it be a burden of body or soul, poverty, cultural deprivation, mental health, disease, ignorance, family problems, and all things else, the state has a program and a plan of salvation. Liberation theology essentially says this. Dave Brees, Dr. Dave Brees, uh, defines liberation theology for us. He says, what is liberation theology? This is modernity in the church. He said, it is the view that holds that Christ came into the world to be our economic liberator. It asserts that his first purpose was to free the poor and the oppressed from the shackles of economic constriction. In actuality, liberation theology redefines sin. Sin is to possess wealth in the face of the world's poverty. Righteousness is to redistribute that wealth, giving it to the poor. Evangelism is also redefined. It is seen as the announcement of the economic liberation of Christ and the invitation to the oppressed peoples of the world to join the revolution he ordains. And uh, this idea has come right into evangelicalism uh, today in the form of various emergent movements. Christians writing about justice on the whole see social justice as requiring coercive salvation through the powers of the state to bring about the ideal just order. Now, many of these Christian intellectuals no doubt have good intentions. Many of these people, I think, do care about the poor. They are concerned for um, justice in their society. But the myth that all revolutionaries have believed and continue to believe, they may begin with noble intentions for liberation. Notice it's never about liberty. Liberty is not the same as liberation. In fact, they're the opposite. Liberation means the removal of other people's liberties. It's not a movement for liberty. It's a movement for liberation. They have these noble intentions very often, which involve state-sanctioned robbery, but they finish in a police state. The Christian, for the Christian, the bottom line cannot be there are good intentions. You may say, well, you know, I think we should take from the rich and give it to the poor, because that would be good, because I'm concerned for the poor. That's your good intention. But as David Chilton has noted, if in the name of love for the poor I transgress God's law by supporting the legal plunder of my rich neighbour to fund the poverty programme, I am not really loving regardless of my profession, for love is always concerned to fulfil the law of God. Let's just take this room for a minute. Let's personalise this for a moment. Let's say that Lisa here, because she's very well dressed, is really rich. And Scott up there, who looks a bit dishevelled, is poor. Okay? Uh, and what if one of you really concerned for Scott's well-being, concerned for his, he's got a daughter, and concerned for his family, says, you know what, Lisa could probably spare a bob or two, so uh, 
that was a dime in England, sorry, could spare a dollar or two. So uh, one of you decides that you're going to lift uh, Lisa's credit card and buy a few things online for Scott while she's here. How many of you would support that? <laughs> Thank you, Greg. None of you in your right mind would support the idea that it was okay for you to steal from one of these people in order to uh, alleviate Scott's situation. Now, completely different if Lisa decides to get out of her credit card and buy him some clothes. None of you would support that, but many of you would think it was justice if the state did it. If a differentiated public said, well, we're the source of sovereignty, we can define justice, so we're going to come up with a piece of legislation that will do that. Many Christians, they would call that justice. What obedience to God, without obedience to God as the priority, see, our good intentions lead to simply a multiplication of coercive laws that rob people of their God-given liberties. Now the issue, you may think that Lisa ought to make a large donation to Scott. But how is that up to you? How is that a matter of justice for you to determine or coerce? I'm wearing a pair of $300 pants right now. Made by Canali. Right? They won't fit most of you because I'm a lot slimmer than most of you here. But um, uh, they were given to me. They were given to me by a wealthy member of our congregation. He'd never worn them. He'd gotten too large. He'd had them sat in his closet for ages. I can't afford to buy a $300 pair of pants. I've got three children. I'm a pastor. <laughs> right? But would it have been right for a member of the congregation to say, that guy's got five really nice jackets and those canali pants and he's not even wearing them. I'm stealing those and giving them to the pastor. He need to look at the state of his pants. <laughs> None of us would support that. But in the name of social justice, we pursue many of these things uh, in the name of God. By contrast, the biblical faith, let me just uh, cite to you what we find in the law. The, the number of laws given to us in the Torah is limited. Three, 613 by rabbinic reckoning, fewer by Christian counts. Again, these laws are mainly enforceable by God, not by man. Those that can be enforced by man, for the most part, placed in the hands of the family, the specifically religious agency, or the state. They do not empower any institution or agency to control man and life. The primary solution to problems is not by means of coercion, revolution, or punishment, but by means of regeneration. Force is not abolished because it is needed in a fallen world, but it is limited. A culture that relies on force to maintain itself is already in a process of decay and dissolution. Civilization is constructed on the premises of a religious faith and it wanes when the faith wanes. When men play God, they are unable to regenerate any man. They cannot by their fiat will make of any man a new creation. They must rather rely on compulsion from compulsory education to strict controls on every man. The state seeks to recreate man by means of coercion. George Orwell in the novel of 1984 saw the end of the state's power as the naked exhibition of total power a boot stamping on a human face forever. So actually what the Bible requires is concern for the oppressed, concern for the poor, uh, but a minimal civil government and a non-coercive charitable order of which most of God's law is enforceable only by God himself where tithes and offerings are freely given for the relief of the poor. And God blesses that responsibility and puts a curse essentially on everything else. So the issue, what, I, what I'm describing, is not that some of you may be thinking, well, Joe's not supportive of helping the poor. On the contrary, social finding, financing has to be provided. The issue is how is it to be provided? How is social financing to be provided? Can it be through state-sanctioned theft, however well-intentioned, progressive taxation, windfall taxes, inheritance taxes, property taxes, tax this, tax that, tax the other, plundering people's wealth to actually enrich the state? The English state will take 40% of my inheritance when my father-in-law dies. You don't have inheritance laws yet in Canada. When my father-in-law passes away and leaves my wife and I his estate, 
The state believes itself to be the elder brother and they will seize 40%, which means we will immediately have to sell his assets in order just to pay the tax bill. And that's how Britain has asset stripped the population. We are actually commanded by Christ to give freely, but we are not to support the politics of covetousness, envy and class warfare, which only creates social disintegration. It doesn't serve anyone. Anybody with the gall to suggest that the English welfare state today has blessed the poor is living a delusion and ought to go and move to Birmingham and experience it. There is no indication in the Bible that true justice in a society ever eliminates charity. You have a lot of Christian intellectuals who argue that charity is wrong. Because it reinforces structures of oppression. I.e. what they believe is that there should be no charity in a coercive state order because everything's equalised. Nobody will need charity. That's what the Soviet Union believed. The Soviet Union made charity illegal. You, could, you couldn't give charity to your neighbour. Why? Because charity is a form of government. Let me give you a quick illustration of that. If... Um, if we were having a whip round for Scott here, right? let's say we're in the Soviet Union, and uh, Scott's house has burned down, right? so we need, to, we need to pay his rent for his family to, to live somewhere else for a few months. And so we all said, look, we need to have a whip round for Scott, let's, let's pay his rent for six months. Who's Scott going to be grateful to when his rent is covered? Who's he going to thank? Us. If the state takes over all those responsibilities, what is the state trying to do? It's trying to create an allegiance solely to the state and eliminate rival government in the family and the church and in the private sector. So if you make, not only do you depersonalize charity and giving, you make everybody's orientation toward the state as the new sovereign. It's completely logical. Equalization, though, is not the goal of justice. So only, only, it's only conceptually, it's only in terms of uh, um, intellectual idealism that you could ever eliminate charity in a social order, and that would be by total communism. But total communism, as has been proved, is utterly impossible. Charity and true justice are rooted in restitution, restitution and restoration in God's order, and together charity and restitution manifest the way of righteousness in the Decalogue. And that means, by the way, if you're really interested in helping the poor, there is a prohibition in Scripture against all forms of theft and covetousness. Ten Commandments, think about them. You shall not steal. Actually, there's another one. You shall not bear false witness. You shouldn't steal the person's reputation. And you shall not covet. So actually, God's law says... That not only, not only should you not steal a person's property, you shouldn't even covet another person's property. So you've got two, arguably three, of God's commandments concerned with the question of stealing. That presupposes private property, does it not? You don't need a law against stealing if private property is not something that's sanctioned by God. Or family property, better put So whenever you hear a Christian advocating theft by the arm of the government, well, we're advocating breaking the Ten Commandments. What God does require, though, is three tithes, which approximates 15 to 18% of your income. Three tithes, only one-tenth of which went to the priest for public worship, the rest went for education and social provision. And you know, in the history of Christendom, the church paid for education and all welfare. Hospitals, everything. The church paid for it, not the state. We, the church funded it. Christians funded it through the tithe. Only 5% of North American Christians tithe now. So if we abandon God's law as a means of provision for the needy, the tithe, and replace, replace it with statist justice through institutionalized robbery, state coercion, it's actually a double theft from God. We're robbing God of his tithe and then we use the state to rob other people to do what we're supposed to be doing. 
See how unjust that is? I've got so much good stuff to say and I've only got two minutes to say it. <laughs> okay, really quickly, wrap this up. Justice then is a religious concept. And if we denude it of its biblical clothing, justice becomes purely an illusion. One social commentator has put it very well. He says, if men of wealth control the state, the law becomes their tool to subjugate the poor and make them poorer. If poor men control the state, the law is used to rob the rich and all hard-working people to support those who want to live on the proceeds of robbery. In the one case, it's called maintenance of the social order, and in the other, it's called social justice and social welfare. But in both cases, it's robbery. And today, because God's righteousness is despised, the nations of the world are becoming robber states and lands without justice. You know, Augustine said this. He identified this issue very clearly. He says, justice being taken away... Then what are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? He says if you take justice out of the state, the state becomes nothing more than a great robbery. There's the story told of, I think it was Alexander the Great on the high seas. I don't know if any of you remember this story when he's, uh, he, he um, boards a vessel for piracy. And the pirate being a quick-witted individual... He was uh, being arraigned for, um, uh, for illegal uh, privacy, uh, piracy. And uh, he said to Alexander, he said, <clears throat> I do, what I do with one little ship is called theft. And what you do to entire nations is simply called empire building. So if, we have, if the state is denuded of justice... Well, you just create a robber institution. Very often when you read about the desire and the drive for social justice in the uh, contemporary literature of Christians, what you get the strong sense of is that the problem is a sense of guilt. Now, we're carrying a sense of guilt about having wealth, about being uh, uh, colonists or imperial powers, about being male, about being Western, and so on. And the idea is that maybe by suicidal economic activity, state-sanctioned theft, self-punishment, sacrificial burden-bearing, you think about the countries that the Western world is funding through foreign aid, who are using it to kill people, guilt payments, carbon taxes, and so on. This is actually a human attempt to alleviate the problem of guilt. Marxism actually is, a, is a, essentially a redemptive system. The Marxist status character of its thought is interesting. It's a kind of self-atonement. Christ's atonement is God's restitution set forth on our behalf in terms of justice. Christ pays for our sin. You can't pay for your sins. States and nations can't deal with their guilt through payments. The modern political state believes essentially that we can, that uh, if we will make some kind of, uh, um, if we will burden bear, or let's take the issue of uh, the statistic uh, character of some of what we're doing. What we say is, there's a problem of injustice in society, who's perpetrating it? Well, it's the white Christian male wealthy individual, let's get him. Or it's the black community, let's get them. Or it's this community, let's get them. So you have essentially the idea of laying punishment for the sins of the community on a certain group. And that's sadism. The other approach to self-atonement is masochism, which says, well, maybe I can bear the burden of sins myself. Some of, you, uh, some of us have got masochistic relatives, right? Then they're, they're never well. Right? They always say they're sick, they're always suffering, they're always bird bearing the burdens of the world, and they're miserable to be around because they're such sin bearers for everybody else. Well, states do that as well. Right? Western guilt has become the cornerstone of, of uh, political thought today. That the West should be guilty for its real and imagined crimes, and that there must be uh, payments, reparations made. And this is because we have exchanged Christ's atonement for human atonement. I'm going to leave it there because it's lunchtime. I had more to say, but I will pick some of those thoughts up when I deal with...
biblical justice uh, tomorrow. We have to look to Christ's atoning work to deal with the problem of our guilt. Charity should not be done out of guilt or a sense of uh, uh, undue privilege. Charity is something that comes out of righteousness towards God. Christ has redeemed us. We're freed from the power of guilt. And now out of generosity and obedience to God in the way of righteousness, I give. And I want to bless others. I want to be a blessing. I want to care for the poor, have concern for the oppressed, work for the fatherless and so on. Because I have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Modern politics is a counterfeit atonement. And it's this modern concept of social justice are a way of alleviating our pressing sense of guilt because we've abandoned the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.